This morning, we're going to be looking at this sense of we are more than this. We are more than the work that we do. We are more than the achievements that we have. We are more than the relationships, the friendships that we have in our lives. As Brené Brown said, what you, ma- what you know matters, but who we are matters more. And just before we start, I'm going to invite Tom to come and join me. Give him a round of applause. I only asked him about two minutes ago. So it's really kind of him. So, Tom, we're thinking about um, how we are kind of more than the things uh, that we find ourselves doing in our day-to-day and actually kind of where we can find our worth and identity. What has that kind of meant to you over the last uh, few years? Um, Well, I think sort of my natural mode of operation really is uh, sort of seeing value in what I do and things like that. And uh, I mean, I I guess that's kind of the way the world works and I sort of live like that for 20 years or so. Um, and that's, you know, if I default, then that's, that's what I see really. It's, it's, you know, at the back of my mind is you are kind of what you do and what you deliver and how good it is and things like that. Um, and it's really easy to, to think like that. Um, and then when you become a Christian, you learn that things are different. And it's now not about what you do and, uh, and how well you do it. But um, I definitely, I'm still learning that. And, and even this year, I've, I've still been learning that. And I think, you know, I've got more to learn on that. But... You know, I know things are different. I just need to sort of work it through sometimes. And on the days where um, maybe you do know it's not sort of in what you do as much as the days when it maybe feels more real, how does that impact you and how you see yourself? Um, yeah, I was, I was thinking actually, because when I'm, say I'm in work, which is, you know, when things are really busy in work and they have been for ages and you sort of, your head goes down and you sort of get, just get focused on the task and delivering and things like that. And you kind of forget that that's not what, makes you you and and where God sees your value Um, and then you sort of when you have a bit bit of space on a Sunday or something or a bit of time to get away and realize it's kind of like coming up from being underwater for too long and you come up and it's like you you take a deep breath and you know you have that sort of freedom from being you know um, just uh, not in a not in your natural environment almost so it kind of feels like that to me. Great. Tom, thank you. Thank you for doing this at such short notice and for being so vulnerable and open. Let's give him another round of applause. Thanks, Tom. So we're going to unpack this a little bit throughout the rest of the morning today, just thinking about that sense of where is it that we get our worth and our value. And probably in today's society, we are a little bit better than maybe we were 10 or so years ago, at knowing that when we meet people for the first time, one of the things we probably shouldn't ask as our opening question is, so what is it that you do? We've probably heard that many times, don't ask people what is it that you do, because that puts all the value and all the worth on the things that they do. And yet, how many of us have met people for the first time, and the first thing we always say is, so what is it that you do? Because we struggle to think of another question. Um, I really learnt my lesson in this many, many years ago when I used to live down in Winchester. And I was at a party, my uh, introvert had completely overridden any sense of extrovert within me and I was being hugely socially awkward, kind of stood in the corner, not really wanting to talk to anyone. And I found myself standing next to a middle-aged guy who was equally looking just as socially awkward and like he didn't want to talk to anyone. And so I stood there thinking, well, I should really strike up conversation with this guy, not really knowing what to say. And so obviously the first thing that came in my mind was, so what is it that you do? And uh, there was a bit of a pause. He went a little bit red and he shuffled a little bit didn't think much of it. And then he said, oh, well, actually, um, I'm a professional tickler. 
I tickle people. Now, I've never stopped a conversation so quickly in my life. I don't know what that means. I don't want to know what that means. But it really taught me the lesson. Don't ask people what it is that they do, because you don't know what the answer will be. On a side note, if you Google nowadays alternatives to the question, what is it that you do, one of the top questions that it suggests is, what was the last photo you took on your phone? So I'm really glad that at that point, phones really weren't a thing. They didn't exist, thank goodness. But actually, so often, as Tom so brilliantly put, our identity and our self-worth can so easily be caught up in the things that we do, in the jobs that we have, or the lack of them, in the relationships, the friendships that we have, or lack of them, in the achievements that we manage to do, in the money that we have, the houses we own, the possessions, all of those sorts of things so easily are where we can find our identity and our self-worth. And so often we find ourselves living a life of endless striving because we'll never get to that point where we say, we've achieved enough, we've done it. We're so confident in our self-worth because we're so confident in ourselves and the things that we can do. Or we live a life where we are endlessly comparing ourselves to other people because actually they've got so much more and they're doing so much more and they're doing it so much better and I just wish I could be them. And so we find ourselves never really living up to the sense of wanting to know that we are fantastic, this sense of wanting to know that our self-worth is sorted and we look at ourselves in the mirror every morning and go, yay, I'm great, because we can never achieve it. I don't know how many of you saw uh, this week, there was an um, article published in a newspaper all about a documentary that Prince Charles is doing. And his documentary that he's doing is all about his job and his role. And the title of the article just said something like, thank goodness, a royal who knows all we're interested in is his work. And the article was basically an article absolutely slating Meghan Markle and Prince Harry for their documentary where they were quite vulnerable and where she talked about her struggles and how hard she'd found it uh, when she first got married and how she'd felt like the British press had been so unfair to her and torn her to pieces. And this whole article goes on to say, isn't it great? Because all we're interested in, all we want to know about is the job that they do. We don't want to know about anything else. And often maybe we can feel a little bit like that that people are just interested in the things that we can do rather than just the person that we are. But if we look at the model of Jesus, and if we look at the life that Jesus led and the example that he gave to us, and in the, particularly the first four books of the New Testament that we call the Gospels, which look at the life of Jesus, we see a really different model given to us. A model where actually... Our identity isn't found in who we are, but in whose we are. Because so often we think that what we do is the most important thing. But Jesus gives us a radical new model. That our identity isn't in who we are, but in whose we are. Many times throughout the Bible that we're going to be looking at a little bit, Jesus comes before God and he calls him Abba. And I don't know how many times you've heard that, maybe in a kind of a church context or in any other kind of context, you've heard the word Abba. And often we can think of it as a little child coming before someone going, Daddy. But as Richard Cohen writes in his book, Our Father, the Aramaic translation of Abba is something more respectful than Daddy, but more intimate than Father. Something more like Dad. So time and time again, we see Jesus, the Son of God, sent down to this earth, coming before God, his Father, and simply saying, Dad, 
that he knew his identity was alone found in the fact that he was a child of God. In John 17, Jesus prays a beautiful prayer. And five times in that prayer, he uses the word Abba, Father, where he simply says, you're my dad. Dad, the time has come, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. And now, Dad, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Dad, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they will know that we are one. Countless times throughout the Bible where Jesus simply just comes and says, Dad, because he knows, he's assured that his identity is found in the fact he is the son of God. He is the son of God who has a dad there who is championing him, who loves him, who is for him in all circumstances of his life. And we see time and time again in the most significant moments of Jesus' ministry, many times uh, as he begins the Sermon on the Mount, he refers to God as Abba, Dad where he's standing up for one of the first times teaching his disciples, saying, this is why I have come. I want to tell you about the new way that you can live and the new things that you can have in your life. In the most intimate moments of his life, where time and time again it says he withdraws to pray. He withdraws away from the crowds, from the busyness of life, and he simply comes before his father and he says, Dad, because he knows that he can come to God, his father, as his dad, and that he will listen to him. In the most vulnerable times of his life, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing that he's about to die on a cross, and he's there probably the most broken that we read of him in the Bible, saying, Dad, if you can take this away from me, please do. But not my will, but yours. Time and time again, in so many different parts of his life, with so many different emotions, with so many different things that he is facing and walking through, he simply comes and he says, Dad... And just as a side note, for some of us here, the word dad probably is a painful word because our earthly experience of a dad has not been a positive one. And for some of us here who have had the most brilliant examples of an earthly father, even then they will have also let you down. But what we're talking about here when we're talking about God as dad, as father in heaven, is the best relationship that we could ever possibly imagine. Better than any relationship that we will ever experience here on this earth. Because this is God, Father in heaven, saying, I love you and I'm here for you. That Jesus continually lives in the understanding that God is his father and that his identity is found in his son. And this is a really familiar passage to many of us, the Lord's Prayer. We say it often at weddings, at christenings, at baptisms. We hear it in church, we might even hear it in school, we might see it on the television. It's a very familiar prayer that for many of us, even if maybe we don't have a, a really ongoing church background, it's something that we may have heard already before. And so Jesus comes to this point where he's saying, this is how I'm going to teach you to pray. This is a big moment. This is the first time Jesus has stood in front of his disciples and he said, this is how I'm going to teach you to pray. And they're probably all there thinking, right, okay, this is important, brilliant, we're ready. This is the moment where we're going to learn how we can speak to this big, awesome God who made the whole world, who we've read about uh, from time and time before, and we've had prophecies given to what might happen. This is our moment. And they're probably there listening, waiting. And there are so many ways that Jesus could have started this prayer. 
And we probably take for granted a little bit how Jesus did start this prayer. Again, Richard Coken says, in the Jewish culture of Jesus' day, God was addressed with ascriptions of power and majesty. Jesus could have begun this prayer with our creator, our sovereign, our judge. And yet Jesus begins this prayer with our Father. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And in that moment, in those two short little words, Jesus gives each one of us the same invitation to come before God as his children, to know that our identity, our self-worth is caught up not in what we do, in the things that we see, the people that we know, the things that we own, but in the fact that we are children of God, first and foremost. When John, my husband, first introduced me to his dad, he didn't introduce me to his dad and say, Sarah, here is our father. That would have been weird. When I first met John's dad, John said, hi, this is my dad. And how easily Jesus could have started this prayer with those words. This then is how you should pray. Come to my dad and say, hallowed be your name. And we could have easily done that. And we could have still known that we have a God who we can come to, who will answer our prayers and who will listen to us. But we would have known that he was Jesus' dad, not our dad. And in these two words, which so often we probably say and we don't really think so much about, that invitation which says, but he's our father. He's father to every single one of us, that every single one of us can come before him and say, God, dad, and know that our identity is found in that truth. And so Jesus offers us something radically different to what has gone before. I wanted to introduce you to a, someone who's a very important part of our family. If you've been at church here for a while, you might have met Spotty before. He often joins me at the front when I'm leading with my middle daughter, Isla. Uh, so you've probably seen him hanging out in prayer times at the front with Isla hanging off my leg. But Spotty is one of the most loved members of our family. Isla goes to sleep every night cuddling Spotty. She wakes up every morning and Spotty is still in her arms, even if she has changed position about a million times. When she goes to the doctors, when she goes to uh, things that she feels a bit vulnerable about, when she goes to her friends for the first time, Spotty goes with her. If you go along to build a bear, you will see 100 or so more bears that look exactly like Spotty. They're colourful, they're bright, they've got a weird tail, I'm not quite sure what animal it is, and very big eyes. But there are hundreds of bears like Spotty. Spotty's value and identity is not in her colour, in her eyes, in her name, in the fact that she is cuddled at night. Spotty's worth and value is found alone in who she belongs to, because she is Isla's. This bear is loved and this bear is fraying and falling apart because Isla loves it. The other bears that look exactly the same and build a bear do not have the same identity as Spotty because they don't have the same owner. And what a beautiful picture for each one of us, that we have a God in heaven who looks down and says, your worth isn't in what you look like. It's not in what you do. It's not in who you are even. It's just simply in the fact that you are my child and that I love you to pieces. And if we ever lose Spotty, we're calling an emergency prayer meeting of the church, I think, <laughs> because that might end our family's happiness for a while. Um, but if we fully grasp this, if we are sat here this morning and we fully grasp 
that our identity is found alone in being a child of God, then that changes our lives completely and utterly. And the amazing truth of these words that Jesus was saying, this then is how you should pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, is he wasn't saying these to a group of people who had been following him for years and years. He wasn't saying these to people who had done lots and lots of courses to find out how they could become professional followers of Jesus. He was saying this to a group of guys who he had literally just called. And then it says there's loads and loads of people who were surrounding him. And he went up the mountain with his disciples to talk to them and to teach them. So this is an amazing truth for every single one of us here. Whether we have been Christians for years and years and years, whether we are still just beginning our journey with Jesus, or whether we haven't even begun it, God says, but these are your words for all of you. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Uh, Many of you will know uh, Nathaniel, who is the site leader over at Mosley. Nathaniel and Alice are some of me and John's really good friends. I first met Nathaniel when he uh, became to do the Right Up Riverside Performing Arts Year many years ago. Uh, He then met Alice and myself and John had the privilege of doing their marriage prep and are really good friends with them now. When Nathaniel first came into role as the site leader in Mosley, it was brilliant because I finally had someone who's my equivalent at Mosey, and so we meet up, we pray weekly, we bounce ideas of one another. Nathaniel is brilliant with things like church suite, which makes Russell's heart for joy. I'm rubbish with church suite. I'm rubbish with computers completely and utterly. And so Nathaniel does those sorts of things, and he helps me out. But actually, I still really compare myself to Nathaniel. And there are moments when I still let those lies come into my head that say, but you're not as good as him, and you can't do that as well as him. And in that moment, I am not living in the fullness of understanding of what it is to live as my identity as a child of God. Because things that are coming in and comparisons and lies that are popping into my head are not the way that God wants me to lead my life. That I am being held back from being the person that God wants me to be because I'm not living with the fullness of assurance. My identity at the core is that I'm a child of God. We have some friends uh, who adopted two children many years ago. Uh, One was very little uh, when they adopted her and the other uh, was a bit older. And chatting to my friend, uh, he said something to me that really stuck with me once, that he was in a conversation with his son who was old enough to remember his birth family. And his son said to him, dad, I always knew that I was a son, but I didn't know what a son could be until I started living in my forever home. And forever home is what they called the family that he came to live with. And how many of us can maybe resonate with that? That actually, we know that we're children of God, but we're not always living in that truth. We're not always living in the truth of our Father, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That this great, majestic, powerful, amazing, incredible God up in heaven is also our dad and gives each one of us an invitation to do that. Because the more we understand whose we are, the more we can start living as the person he intended us to be. The more we understand whose we are, the more we can start living as the person he intended us to be. Uh, In the book, a brilliant book, Atomic Habits, James Clear uh, gives a really brilliant piece of advice in this uh, that I found really powerful uh, when I first uh, read it and understood what he meant. So it says, every action you take is a vote for the type of person you wish to become. No single instance will transform your beliefs, 
But as the votes build up, so does the evidence of your new identity. And he talks about that. One of the examples he gives is the context of being a runner. So if I say I'm a runner, but I don't actually ever go running, then I'm never actually going to believe that I'm a runner. I can say it, but I won't believe it because I'm not running. But if I say I'm a runner and I go running, then I'm going to believe, yes, I'm a runner. Because actually for my identity to take hold of something, I need to demonstrate and show that in my life. Now, the incredible truth of each one of us being called to be children of God is that because of grace, because Jesus died on a cross to take the punishment for all the stuff that we would do wrong so that we can come straight to God and address him as our father in heaven, as our dad, any one of us right now can say, I'm a child of God. But to really live in the freedom of that and to really show that in the lives that we lead and to those around us, actually, we do need to take on board that new identity. And so we do need to do things which will help us to believe that we are children of God. Because probably there aren't that many of us here who have got this totally and utterly sorted, who can say, yes, I know that everything about me is caught up in being a child of God, not in what I do, not in what I know, not in what my achievements are, not in the things that I own, the things that I don't own. And so God says, I've given you a whole book which tells you how much I love you. Maybe just take a simple passage every morning and pray it over yourself. Let it sink into your heart. Say it every single day. Maybe even just that our Father who art in heaven. Say that as you're brushing your teeth. Maybe choose a worship song that really impacts you about being a child of God that you could just play as you're driving around every day. Do the things that help you believe that this is true. Because we live in a world where so many other things will come against us and will say to us, this isn't true. This isn't where your worth is caught up. This is what you need to do. Strive a bit more, do a bit more. And we lead busy lives. I know for myself, I've had those moments. I've gone, I haven't got time to read the Bible. So I've just started playing the Bible on my phone while I start get ready in the morning. This is not a big holy moment. Generally, the Bible's playing on my phone whilst I'm going, go downstairs, brush your teeth, get your breakfast. But it's still playing and I'm still hearing it. And bit by bit, it's getting into my brain and it's seeping in. And I'm finding myself learning more and more that when the lies come in, when the comparisons come in, when the things that tell me I haven't achieved enough and my identity is caught elsewhere, actually there is some truth in my head that is stronger than the stuff from the world that would come out. Because for so many of us here, when we read those words, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, do we really know that sense that our identity is caught up in being a child of God? That we're saying, Dad, that's all I need. Because the more we know this about ourselves, the more we can see this in other people. Because the more that I say, I'm a runner, I'm a runner, and I go out running every day and I become a runner, then I become one of those really annoying people that we all know who goes, all of you can run, come and run with me, let's do a half marathon, let me tell you how many times I've been running this week. We all know those people. I love them, but I'm not one of them. <laughs> so the more I know that I'm a child of God and I live that in myself and I don't get caught up in the lies and the things that would tell me elsewise, then I will see that in everybody else around me as well. And that person who is taking my time at the cashier desk when I'm trying to just do my shopping and trying to get the kids in the trolley and they're talking to me and they want to talk to the kids and I'm just getting annoyed. Actually, I'll say, yeah, hang on, this person's a child of God. They deserve my time. This might be the only person they speak to today. 
And those people that really hurt me or upset me, actually, when I pray the words, forgive our debtors, I will understand more and more how God has forgiven me because he loves me as his child and how much more readily I will be able to come before others and say, I forgive you.